Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. business cycle rebounding or not welcome to this real mission deep dive series interview i'm andreas steno and it's an honor to introduce my guest christophe ulari founder of ulari consulting and um, in my opinion one of the absolute best contributors to the global macro community i've been wanting to host this conversation for a while and we finally made it so great to see you christophe and welcome to the show thank you very much uh, andreas it's, uh, it's a pleasure as usual to be on uh, the real vision and it's a uh... So how not to uh, to do it with you today? I really look forward to it. We are sending live here hot on the heels of the US CPI report just a few hours ago. Um, a very soft reading, at least on the surface, with 4.8% core inflation and 3% headline inflation, both numbers below the consensus expectations. What do you make of the CPI report here just a few hours after it? I think that uh, even uh, well beyond the um, you know the, um, the the actual numbers which were uh, weaker than expected, I think that when you go uh, underneath the uh, the uh, into the details, um, there were clearly uh, very um, very good news on the uh, on the inflation side. Um, when you look at the super core, uh, ex housing, it's uh, uh, we had a flat reading uh, in um, in uh, in June, which is the uh, the lowest print. Uh, since uh, uh, since uh, September 2021, Shed um, was up 0.4% on the month, uh, which is uh, the lowest read uh, so far in 2023. Um, and and Shelter was still 70% uh, of the uh, of the actual you know inflation uh, momentum, which means that if we have in uh, the second part of the year the expected. Uh, um, Shelter uh, disinflation. It means that um, inflation in the U.S. should make uh, the progress toward the uh, Fed uh, Fed's goal. Um, use car were uh, lower. Uh, food uh, was uh, was uh, uh, going the right direction. Uh, airfares were tumbling by uh, more than eight percent. So, it, in fact, in my opinion, it was the first inflation report which shows a strong. Um, you know, strong progress across the board, and and that will be uh, likely uh, welcomed by the Fed. They will not claim victory, of course, because I think that uh, they will need to see more. Um, but I guess that if it, in my opinion, doesn't change the outcome of the July uh, FOMC, I guess that uh, the Fed will still go for uh, uh, 25 bips. And I think that if we have another uh, uh, decent and comparable 
uh, report next month. I think that the tightening campaign of the Fed is uh, is uh, likely over. So, given that this is the first report with clearly soft signs uh, from the inflation front, how close are we to that pause or pivot from uh, the Federal Reserve, first of all? Is it something that is within reach this year, or how do you see that playing out? I think that, yeah, I, I, I believe that uh, if, again, if... Um, I think the Fed will be very cautious to say, you know, the job is done. Um, we had, you know, too many event flows in the uh, in the macro narrative, in the macro dynamic, or even in the uh, inflation side. So I think that the Fed is very, um, I think, focused on not, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about it, but they don't want to repeat the uh, the mistakes of the year 70s. And even if uh, to some people it seems a bit too much, I think that in the Powell's uh, mindset, um, he wants to avoid, you know, giving um, a green light uh, in terms of, okay, we are done and uh, to being forced to to uh, restart again. So I think they're going to pause. In my opinion, if we have a second uh, inflation report comparable to today, uh, next month, um, I, think, I think we're going to have a pause after the July hike. That sounds very plausible, and uh, let's see whether inflation um, stays at, at this course. It would be good news for the Federal Reserve indeed if if it happened. If we look at and other, and, and, uh, and, yeah, sorry, I, and, and I think that even if I don't believe in you know that kind of um, central banks being on the same tempo, I think it's interesting that the RBNZ clearly flagged the pause uh, the pause uh, overnight. Mm. Um, I haven't seen the uh, the end result of the uh, Bank of Canada uh, meeting today, but I think there is most there is a reason to believe that if they hide, uh, it will be one of the uh, last one as well. So I think we are on that you know like dynamic where it's time to assess and to stay in restrictive territory, which is in fact adding to the tightening uh, you know uh, campaign anyway. If you stay at about five percent for for six months or eight months, you are anyway tightening, still tightening. Mm. Yeah, and that's uh, an interesting point because I think no matter where you look, uh, both in Europe and in uh, North America, but also central banks elsewhere, they communicate that we're kind of close to the peak, but that they want to stay at elevated interest rate levels for long. Um, the most recent example of such communication came from uh, the French governor from. Uh, European Central Bank, Francois Wigilar, he, he said the same thing, that we're close to peak, but we want to stay there, um, basically for as long as we can see. Do, do you see that as a feasible scenario that central banks can actually stay at, at a plateau of elevated rates, say into 2024, maybe into 2025? I think, they, I, I, I think they're going to keep on repeating that the same communication for longer. Um, Again, the, the last paragraph of the RBNZ today was, was very crystal clear. First of all, they, they say we are confident that now the level of rates will be enough to bring back inflation uh, within the, uh, the 1% to 3% uh, target range. Co confident is uh, one of the first time they're using that, uh, that term, that uh, some decent progress is made. But they, they say as well that we're going to stay there for 
an extended uh, period of time. And, and I think that this is the second step. Okay, we pause, but for now, uh, pause doesn't mean uh, pivoting. Pause means we stay in restrictive territory for, I think, I don't think they're going to stay there for 2024, to be honest, but I think that their, their time frame is at least communicating until um, no cuts in 2023, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And in relation to this discussion on a pause relative to a pivot, uh, I, I, I wanted to discuss your pivot framework with you. You sent me some notes ahead of this interview, and you had a hilarious way, but also very tangible way of assessing whether a pivot from a central bank is feasible or not. So let, let's go through your pivot framework for the Federal Reserve. When is a pivot feasible? So I, I try to, yeah, I try to read them by your own uh, acronym for a pivot. <laughs> and some kind of, you know, um, guideline to assess when, when, we, uh, we, when we're going to shift from posing to uh, pivoting. And um, so I, P, I, I put P as a, you, you're going to need two or, let's say two or three uh, negative payroll uh, to see the Fed starting to um, to uh, wonder whether it's uh, pivoting is uh, necessary. I is uh, for inflation, of course, like two targets and, and remaining around target uh, on, a, you know, on a sustainable way. V, um, VIX above uh, 50. O uh, for oil, oil 3.45. And T, and T in, in fact, is maybe the most important because we saw that, you know, it, it really uh, impacted, not for long, but the, uh, the Fed in uh, March. T for, you know, treasury dysfunctionalities or um, credit events or, or like in September 2019, um, a very acute funding or repo uh, stressing uh, period. So, so, so it, when you look at that, we are, it doesn't mean that they compose, but when you look at the uh, the five parameters, um, we are not there yet for, uh, for a, a decisive pivot towards the uh, red cuts. But the question is, how far are we from such territory? Is it something that you could envisage, say, within six, 12 months from here, that we actually take all of the five bucks? I, I think that in that uh, pivot acronym, Obviously, if I, it's very, it's very difficult to uh, preempt, you know, a credit event or a um, very uh, acute um, treasuries or dysfunctionalities. So I, I will emphasize on the, on the P, on the payroll side. I think the job market has been one of the, you know, the pillar of the, uh, of the uh, hawkish communication of the Fed. We, how can we uh, basically be sure that inflation will remain acceptable levels if if the job market remains super strong if wages are not uh, contained so i think that the peril side for me is uh, and on top of that the job market has been crucial you know for um for the u.s animal spirit if you know that even if you lose the job you're going to get the get back another one very quickly um it's a uh, it's super supportive for uh, your uh, psychological mindset and um, it's supportive as well to extend your uh, your consumer uh, credit uh, and your uh, credit card and everything so i think that for me the um, the job market is, is 
the most important right now, especially knowing that inflation is heading toward the uh, you know, the Fed goals, and uh, we made some uh, progress on that side. Um, it has been extremely difficult to to assess the job market. You know, we we had uh, some jobless claims hinting that uh, maybe uh, the real deal was in place. Um, still not convincing. Um, working hours are also just like a little red flag. So far, no. But but job market is a is a lagging indicator, so we can have a surprise uh, uh, by uh, you know by. Uh, after the summer or in Q4, so I, I don't I don't push it away, but for that it's still a pending question. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Speaking of the job market and the spinovers to inflation, um, the, the inflation report today was obviously a good um, sort of first slide of, of inflation reaching uh, levels closer to uh, to target range again. But where do you see this inflation debate heading over the next, say, three to five years? Will we ever get back to that pre-2020 um, range, or is it a new territory, this? I um I I I think it's one of the most important uh, debate and uh, and the, what I what I like somewhere it's you know there is no uh, there is no gray area you have two camps you have the uh, no uh, you know, COVID and and uh, and um, but the, the post COVID uh, amplified by the Russian uh, invasion was just a blip in a long term and a fundamental. Uh, inflationary trend and you got a second camp thinking that that in fact something has changed and uh, the, um, the, the the big forces are supportive for the uh, for the low inflation uh, paradigm has been uh, has been uh, altered I am that camp to be honest I think that I think that um, the uh, globalization has been has been and uh, we remain so. I think the two big shocks you had on the um, on the world uh, labor force, so the uh, the uh, the admission of China in the WTO and the uh, the fall of the uh, Iron Curtain and Agon. I think we're going to more scarcity of the world and more um, confrontation and pressure world. So so. In my opinion, we are we will not go back to the very low inflation regime that we that we um, witnessed uh, pre uh, pre COVID. Hmm. And maybe we can conclude with the discussion on how to asset allocate in, in such a scenario. Because I want to um, to focus on the near term first here uh, with this potential pulse from the Federal Reserve upcoming after the July hike. 
seems like the July hike is still the base case for most people out there, even despite the soft inflation report today. But should we get this as the last hike of the uh, rate hiking cycle? Is that then a green light for equities to um, rally even further? That's the big question here. How do you see that scenario? I'm guilty myself of posting a lot of charts on how equities tend to rally after a, a pause from the Federal Reserve. But is that the base case from here in your opinion? That's, that's, you know, this is, um, I think the, 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 the most difficult, almost the most difficult question. I, I would tend to say that obviously equity market love, uh, love, uh, any pause from the Fed, um, much more than any, uh, cut, uh, and this is, uh, I think uh, much more important than anything else. It's because usually when the Fed cuts, it's, uh, it's too late and it means that, uh, there is, uh, the, uh, the U.S. recession is already in place. So I think that's a pause with inflation going back to target for the time being. I, I doubt that the uh, the uh, U.S. equity will not like uh, initially the uh, you know, a less aggressive uh, Fed uh, uh, giving some more chance to uh, to achieve the soft landing. So yes, I. First reaction will likely be um, equity uh, extending their uh, their rally. Hmm. One one of the things I I really wanted to discuss with you today is whether we are at a juncture where there's actually a rebound ongoing uh, in the U.S. economy. Some people are starting uh, floating uh, various macro indicators hinting that the economy is actually rebounding, not just doing better than fears, but actually rebounding. Um, so. Um, where do you see this discussion right now? Um, are, do we have signs of the economic growth actually doing better on a momentum basis than just a few months ago? Uh, or, or how do you see that, Christoph? I think that, you know, it's um, what, is, uh, what is key in the U.S. economy. It's uh, the uh, U.S. consumers. I, uh, I, I always go back, you know, um, to uh, what is the uh, net uh, worth of the U.S. households compared to uh, Q1 2020? It's 40 trillion uh, higher. Um, you've got a uh, staggering um, performance of the U.S. equities in the beginning of the year. Housing prices are uh, starting to rise again. Um, if if you know you send the message that that the Fed is posing. For now, I think that the U.S. consumer is still it's still very uh, well alive, and uh, and you know you always said I don't fight the Fed in my career. I I always kept uh, somewhere in my mind don't don't fight the U.S. consumers. So so far I don't see any evidence that that the economy is slowing for sure. When you look at the uh, uh, various metrics in June, uh, the U.S. consumers I as sentiment and the spending as a bounce again and so i don't see for now uh, any strong evidence that uh, that that the u.s economy is doing anything else that uh, keep doing very well and which is not surprising we are you know we 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 have and i think that has been the the, the biggest mistake of the uh, of the uh, central banks uh plus covid it's Thinking that post COVID will be like a post uh, GFC, or mm -hmm. uh, thinking that their monetary stimulus will be non-inflationary and just supporting the economy rather than 
uh, giving the big boost. Um, the big difference, obviously, we know it's uh, the uh, it was not only a monetary uh, stimulus, but it was a huge uh, fiscal package. And uh, we uh, we talk about it. It's uh, when you look at post COVID and post GFT, everything looks quite similar, except that the velocity of M2 uh, bounce, which means that the cash sent into the system went somewhere, went into the real economy, which is a big difference compared to um, compared to uh, post GFC. Um, Christoph, you were one of the few very loud voices uh, at the early beginnings of the year saying that sentiment was too negative, positioning was very bearish, and you highlighted that, so I wanted to give you an on-air hat tip for that. But where do you, where do you see the positioning and the sentiment moving right now? Uh, among your clients, speaking partners, uh, etc., do you still sense that negativity, or is the positivity coming? Now it's um, the, the positioning has has massively changed compared to uh, January. Um, that there is absolutely no doubt about it. And what is what is very interesting again, it's the systematic uh, community has given the uh, the tempo again. They were the first one to um, to be uh, squeezed. Uh, at the end of uh, 22, first one to re-leverage very aggressively. And, and, and you saw that slowly but surely it has triggered that human uh, FOMO. And, um, and so there are the hedge fund community is um, meaningfully uh, re-leveraged. The retail as well. Um, the global fund manager really um, jump into the uh, bullet train um, over the last uh, month. So in terms of positioning and sentiment, we are definitely far away from uh, from January. Uh, we are getting a very fear and grade index is in the uh, extreme grid. Uh, all the metrics in terms of positioning have, have jumped uh, aggressively. So on that side, I really think that there is less room. It has changed massively. Now you need a trigger, and uh, and and I think that the first one to exit will be the systematic community as well. Again, so CTS, board control, and risk parity. For that, you need um, you need a, a change in the and the uh, vol regime because the vol is their only one positioning uh, token. If the central banks are you know hinting for a pause, it's difficult to see a vol regime change very soon, well, not for now, unless we have an exogenous, uh, you know, uh, event, which is impossible to, to preempt to, uh, to pricing. So I'm checking vol, um, uh, interest rate vol, especially because uh, we spiked for, for the last 10 days, unless I see meaningful reason to see a vol change. I can't see the systematic uh, community uh, exiting, so I can't see an immediate end of, you know, formal. Uh, six months ago, you know how it works. I need to perform. I need to beat my competitor. Uh, can I beat my competitor going short of equities right now? I don't think that anyone will think that at that, that specific moment. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I, I tend to agree with you on that assessment. And 
it is also my impression that uh, what I tend to label as real money players, uh, so pension funds and asset managers, have been underweight equities through the years. So they're basically trading benchmarks, meaning that they will have to try and load up on risk to, to sort of recover some of that uh, towards yeah. the end of the year here. Um, it, it's very interesting that you highlight interest rate volatility as sort of a guiding star for um, systematic trading strategies, et cetera. Uh, I know you have a background within a proprietary trading as well, um, Christophe. So why is interest rate volatility so important for all sorts of strategies? Can you please elaborate a bit on that? In fact, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it, in fact, the, um, what has been the, the most amazing uh, development in 2022 and some, somehow 2023, it's your pillar of, you know, safety, your anchor in any diversified portfolio, which is the fixed income side has been the one who has created volatility uh, and has been the destabilizing part of your portfolio, which is which is why 2022 has been so difficult to, to trade and why why even in 2023, because you had no visibility on the uh, right side, you had a very slow leveraging, especially on the risk parity side. If you have, um, if you can see more clearly the end of the tightening cycle of the Fed. It means that the, the distribution of outcomes is very limited, which means that you can price more accurately the um, the end of the uh, of the terminal rate, and that the volatility on the short end of the curve is is much reduced. If you can price that, it means that your fixed income uh, side of portfolio regain that um that you know pillar of safety and uh, anchoring in your portfolio which means that you can re-leverage your portfolio knowing that your fixed income side uh, will do what it's supposed to do which is preserving your portfolio in case of unexpected events so when you have your uh, interest rate volatility, which is going down, you can replace accordingly uh, your, um, your, you know, your um, different scenarios uh, uh, for the uh, for the uh, near future. Yeah, I I remember entering a um, a large player in the European private equity uh, space right at the point where the yield curve was essentially zero throughout. Uh, the foreseeable future in the euro curve uh, was it in 2020, right? And um, the interesting thing is that um, most people within private the private equity space, but also uh, the asset management sectors, etc., they've been almost brainwashed with the so-called discounting cash flow model. So if there are no interest rates uh, and there is no interest rate volatility, then you can essentially pay right about everything, um, no matter what the cost for for a company, because you don't punish future cash flows by any means. Uh, so the, the resurgence of volatility and interest rates has also been a game changer for a lot of these players um, that have grown accustomed to um, to interest rates being uh, zero forever, or at least very low forever, but with very low volatility. And and and, and, and that I one key a key uh, driver on that uh, very um, you know low interest rate that is regime that we had. It's, uh, because you had very low inflation volatility, because we are always always focused on you know, the the, uh, the the 
level itself of uh, inflation, but I think what is more important is the volatility of inflation. High volatility of inflation um, makes it impossible for central bankers to to express what they love the most and what the market loves the most. It's a crystal clear uh, forward rate uh, guidance. If you know where you go, you know how, again, you know how to, uh, to price the, the, the potential path with a very high certainty. So uh, I think that, uh, that lower inflation volatility will be key to, you know, to slowly go back to a much more visible and uh, and two-way communication between central banks and uh, and um, and markets which means uh, which means lower uh, interest rate ball and uh, a more stable i would say uh, framework and speaking of interest rate volatility uh there's been a lot of chatter this week on whether the bank of japan could decide to sort of pull the rock from under uh the local bond market in Japan by moving the needle on their yield curve control. Uh, it's obviously a discussion that we've had before this year, uh, so far without any move from Bank of Japan. The last move was in December last year. So Christoph, is this something that's been on your radar this week and, and what's your take on, on the Bank of Japan here? The, the, the Bank of Japan is um, and always been a, a very big focus of mine. It's uh, not only because it has been the outlier of uh, for for a while, not only because because it has been very very crucial in the overall um, asset capital uh, flows, asset allocation, um, in terms of uh, global safety net for risk assets for the last uh, ten years almost until COVID at least. Um, I think that we need to to think about what Kuroda and Ueda um, have repeated um, for a long time, Ueda for three months, but Kuroda for a long time. It's There is no way uh, inflation can be sustained in Japan without rising uh, wages. Um, and um, you remember even Kuroda explained that um, the weak yen uh, policy without uh, expressing it that way, but he was welcoming a weak yen because it was making, you know, the uh, the Japanese multinationals uh, more competitive, creating some, you know, like ambitions to raise uh, wages uh, domestically. Um, so wages is our key. And uh, last week, for the first time, we had the um, the earnings in Japan, which um, were massively higher than expected. 2.5% against the 1.2% uh, consensus, a uh, consequence of, um, you know, the, uh, the union's uh, work uh, and so the, the spring renegotiations uh, in terms of wages. So this is a very important uh, development. Do I think that the BOJ will shift its monetary policy after one set of numbers? I, I really doubt, I really doubt that uh, is going to be the case. Um, so I don't think that uh, the BOJ will, um, will um, deliver any meaningful monetary policy uh, shift in July. Remember, the, um, the BOJ has always been criticized too high too quickly uh, in the past. 
Um, so I think they're going to take a little bit more time. They are worried about, you know, the uh, deflation muscle memory uh, in the Japanese household. So they're going to wait for that as well. Um, I think they are maybe concerned about a potential uh, loss of momentum in terms of growth in the world uh, toward the end of the year. So they don't want to, uh, to uh, you know, to get that inflationary impulse being killed very quickly by external uh, developments. And also, I don't think it was innocent that uh, Rueda mentioned 2024 for a potential shift of the uh, monetary policy of the BOJ, because uh, somewhere not inter interfering with uh, Kishida wants to uh, to uh, use the next six months for uh, early uh, election. So I, I think that, you know, it's everybody would like somewhere to have a finally a shift for whatever reason, when the shift is done, we can move on and not, you know, uh, waiting for that event to, uh, to be repeated. Um, but I think it's too early. Uh, that said, um, in July, so in uh, three weeks time, two and a half uh, weeks time, we're going to have the new uh, CPI uh, podcast mm -hmm. and in my opinion, the BOJ will uh, revise higher the uh, CPI forecast, which has to be seen the way it is. It's acknowledgement of a slow progress toward the target. Yeah. But it's a really good point uh, you make on interfering with Japanese politics. It's something that we've seen other central banks also considering when they when they set monetary policy not to interfere right around a potential election date and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's something that I didn't uh, take note of until you um, you mentioned. It's a really good point. I, I know, Christoph, you have a tremendous chart on um, is it Japanese wages versus dollar yen uh, with a long time lag. So please try and elaborate why the Japanese wage formation is so important for these trends. Yeah, it's a, it's because it's I uh, you know when you look at for example. Um, uh, Rueda in Sintra told us that that underlying inflation in Japan was still below two percent. I spent a lot of time trying to find what he was talking about because that really, uh, uh, displays the same, you know, the same reality to me. But uh, if you take the uh, the ex food um, and uh, the underlying ex-food and uh, energy uh, goods, we are at 4.3% uh, 4, 4 year on year. So I think that it's a way to convince everyone that it's not the actual level of inflation that matters. It's a dynamic. Mm -hmm. and, and, and again, Kuroda has said it for years. I need to see wages going higher. And this is why I think the... Uh, the market reacted so strongly on the uh, on the on the data on Friday because it's the first, you know, um, like first progress on that side in many many years. Yep. And um, the chart we have on the screen now is is uh, sort of a relationship between Japanese uh, wages and dollar. Yes, yeah, yeah. The U.S. earnings and the Japanese earnings again the dollar yen with a on the dollar yen the two years like it shows that that in fact it shows that it's going to be the the, the, the key the, the cornerstone uh, that will uh, allow the boj to uh to shift the monetary policy not not 
They will not take for granted inflation at 5% because they don't believe it will be sustained in the near, in the long run um, if there is not, you know, um, a shift in the mindset of the household in terms of, you know, inflation. And that will only come if the pricing power, right, the possibility of spending of the Japanese uh, increase. So earnings is what matters. And, and um, speaking of Japan, uh, we've obviously spent uh, a lot of time both on Real Vision, but also uh, in the uh, global macro community discussing whether China is rebounding or not um, over the past months here. And I don't think, I, I basically, I think every single day we see a new headline now with Chinese attempts to at least talk off the probability of stimulus coming, et cetera. But how do you view the situation at this juncture, Christophe? Is, is it a true re rebound that we see in China? By, by any metrics, you um, you can just come to the conclusion that that the grand uh, reopening that made all the highlights um, in January um, was a short lived and the, uh, the, the momentum has faded very quickly. And, and it's in itself, it's not surprising for, for many reasons, uh, you know, after, uh, after almost three years of lockdowns, um, we all thought that, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the impact would be like in Europe. Uh, I remember in, uh, I was living in Italy when we went out of lockdown, it was like, you know, living, like there was no tomorrow for months and months, just like finally we can, we can, we can be out again. I don't think that the, 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 the Chinese uh, mentality is the same, first of all. And after three years, I think the impact is much more, you know, uh, opened. Um, secondly, the China uh, Chinese authorities have essentially relied on the monetary uh, uh, stimulus and, and refrained from aggressively pushing on the uh, fiscal uh, pedal. We haven't seen a proper, you know, um, domestic focus um, uh, fiscal uh, package. We haven't seen any proper um, property market focus uh, stimulus package. The reality is that the private sentiment has been massively impaired. Uh, on top of that, if you put the, uh, you know, the unemployment rate at uh, from the uh, 16 to 24 uh, part of the population we are at 20.8 percent which is the uh, all-time high so i think there is some societal uh, malaise uh, there and and maybe you know what um, maybe the most important is the level of debt of the uh, local governments is making the uh, trans uh, transmission mechanism completely uh, broken. So maybe the, the reality is that that the old model uh, to uh, to generate growth in China is absolutely now um, not working anymore. And I think there is a real real um, issue there. Then, then you've got the flip side of the coin, and uh, we discussed about it as well, Andreas. So, China put the target of GDP for 2023 at 5% around, which will be easily uh, achievable. So maybe they never planned to uh, to properly boost the economy in 2023. 
maybe the uh, the reality is they want maybe to see the Western world going into the wall and uh, recession before boosting their own economy. So I think it's a maybe it's a little bit of uh, both. Five five percent around was a strong hint that she doesn't want to boost now, and maybe he's got a long term horizon. But I think the reality is that yeah, uh, and we need to keep that in mind. The whole model of um, of growth generation in in China is, is broken, and uh, and uh, and uh, and you know the local governments through the the bond issuance were the key channel to. To, to to boost very quickly the, uh, the the Chinese economy, it doesn't work anymore. So, as I hear you, Christoph, it's it's not from China that we should expect sort of support for the Western economy uh, right now. So, why is the U.S. economy, as we discussed earlier, holding up so well despite this lack of momentum in China? It kind of leads me to a question on uh, what is typically labeled the R star by economists. So the you can call it the equilibrium interest rate that allows the economy to not fade in momentum. Are we at levels where we're still surprised by the R star level in the U.S. economy? Is is that what's what's sort of driving all of this uh, support for the U.S. economy? Yeah, I think that uh, I think that the you know the uh, the maybe the uh, the the most obvious uh, conclusion it's uh, it's. Uh, as a consequence of what has been delivered post-COVID, um, the R star in the US is uh, is much higher than than markets assumed, and uh, and that the Fed assumed. I, I was quite surprised to see that uh, John Williams uh, a couple of months ago was still assuming, was still stating that R star hasn't moved. I think that the evidence is. The the, uh, the Fed has hiked by 500 bips, uh, reduced the balance sheet uh, for the last 15 months, and we didn't have um, you know a, a big credit event. Okay, we had the SBB and the regional banks, but part of the uh, problem was you know some mismanagement of risk as well, um, and the economy the. Uh, the nominal uh, economy is still running at six percent plus, so you you have to question yourself. It's uh, is there an issue somewhere? I I, I would say that uh, you know uh, remember just remember in two thousand eighteen, uh, the failed high by two hundred bips. It was enough to uh, to uh, to break the uh, the uh, the economy. Uh, we did more than double in a very shorter period of time. And the economy is still, uh, I would say, considering the amount of tightening, the economy is still uh, thriving. So, yeah, you need to ask yourself, where is our staff? That's an fair question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an absolutely fair question. Um, Christoph, we, we just have time for um, a, a detour to a um, an area on the globe that uh, I know you have some knowledge around as well. Um, you're sending live to us from Sao Paulo, Brazil today, and we get some questions coming in on the chats on Latin America as an investment case because Latin America has performed really well um, despite all of the uh, COVID malice and all the turmoil. So how do you view the Latin American investment case and the macroeconomic picture, both in Brazil, but maybe also Mexico and Chile? Listen, it's um, what has been the most amazing in the uh, tightening campaign uh, um, 
that we, uh, we have experienced for the last two years. It's, you know, the, the usual sequence in the past was the Fed were the first to, uh, to hike, mm. <laughs> then giving the tempo to the rest of the uh, developed uh, central banks. And then, obviously, the, um, the EM central banks are forced to hike because their currency were under pressure. And, under, and this time, the EM central bank started the tightening uh, campaign. <laughs> Sorry. And I think that now they've got a lot of ammunition to support the economy in case. The PCB has got uh, rates at 13.5 and Mexico is about 10%. Um, so I think that living in Brazil for uh, two months now, it's, uh, you can feel that I think the start of the easing campaign is very uh, near because um, <clears throat> inflation has, has, uh, has reversed aggressively. Um, and you know that the, the economy needs that impulse. It's uh, for um, a small business, if you want to expand your activity, you have to uh, to borrow cash at fifteen percent. It's not sustainable. So I think that we are at the, at the beginning of the uh, easing cycle here, um, which would be funny as well because it's the same. It's a uh, you know, it's a bit like uh, first in uh, first out. It's it's like you know a FIFO uh, a FIFO uh, dynamic. So I'm 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 positive on the uh, Latin America economy. Because I think they're going to have the uh, the uh, monetary policy stimulus to bring into the uh, to the, uh, the equation very quickly, and uh, and um, and I think that uh, it's a, it's a place to uh, to be and to invest. And uh, my five cents on this question is that I think, uh, especially the Brazilian central bank, has a worse reputation than what is fair. They've done a great job in this inflation cycle, actually controlling inflation better than uh, developed market peers. So kudos to them. Uh, we have a great question from um, from one of our um, listeners um, on the whole discussion on positioning. Uh, and if we get that continued uh, rally in equities as a consequence of big players loading up on risk, um, he, he's asking you, um, as big money players load up on risk, will that push the recessionary pressures out in time or will it just mean that we're dancing on the knife edge until the first person panics? Yes, it's, you know, it's a, a we, I think it's going to push a little bit to the, uh, the outcome. Um, my concern always is if you have you know, a, a ring of uh, risk assets, um, uh, uh, risk taking, and um, and the impact in terms of increasing uh, net worth at one stage is becoming counterproductive for the Fed as well because it's it it's um, I, I would think it's reignite the risk to see a stronger demand and to um, to become you know headwind toward the um, normalization of uh, the core services inflation. So at the beginning you have to uh, welcome it. At one stage, I'm just worried that becomes, um, you know, a tailwind for for a Fed in restrictive territories for much longer. Yeah. Um, 
another question on Chinese equities in relation to our discussion on the broken Chinese model. Um, it's, it's from Hashem asking you, the Hang Seng is now down for two years uh, in a row. Is it feasible that uh, the Hang Seng Index gets back to all-time highs during this reopening period? Or do you see it as a, as a lukewarm investment case, given what you said on their business model in China? <laughs> you know what is the biggest problem with that? Right. Mm. Uh, I think that, and talking about the Yang Seng, we're talking about the uh, more, uh, more specifically as well, the, uh, the Chinese uh, tax. Mm. It has been a theme of investment for two years now. And, and, and the theme has been like a trading graveyard where people have, have, have been killed uh, again and again. And then re-entering, but anytime you re-enter the trade, it can last two weeks and then keep the game. Um, so I think the main problem for, for those markets is to get a, a participation of uh, foreign uh, investors. I, I don't see for the time being anyone who wants to meaningfully re-engage in those markets. And when you play it, you play it, you make quick money and get out. So we need to find that, you know, that way. I don't think it's in terms of, I don't think it's a question of an off model or not. It's a question of, do you believe she when you say that the uh, regulation crackdown is over? Uh, do you have a visibility on on the on the global policy of China? I think it's too difficult. So I think it's, it has become more like you know a, a punting market, a sniping market where you go in, you make money, and you get out. And I, if I may add on on, on this topic, Christoph, I. I visited New York, I uh, was it a few months ago, uh, and attended a few investor conferences. And one of the first slides I had was a, um, a chart on how cheap Chinese equities are from a value perspective, meaning that if you look at it long term, they're very cheap. And I was basically more or less told to leave the room already when I showed that chart in, in, in the US investor conferences, right? There are un there's no appetite on buying China meaningfully um, long term right now. From a geopolitical perspective as well, I think. So you're actually spot on. Um, the final question we have from the audience uh, is, is a good question in relation to how to sum up our whole discussion on whether the business cycle has rebounded and whether we should continue to invest in equities in, at this juncture. It's from Paul, and he's, he's asking you, the yield curve has only been this inverted three times before in history. So 29.73 and 90.79. Um, I haven't checked Paul's numbers, but I guess he's right here. Three times in history, as inverted as now the US yield curve. None of these three instances ended well. <laughs> so what about this one? You know, yeah, I, had, um, I had a discussion with a client about uh, on Monday, actually. Um, what has made, I think that's, 2023 is has been very humbling. I think that I've been in the market for 30 years. And I think this this is the not the most challenging. It's the most humbling year because the micro dynamic is shifting almost every month. Um, you uh, 
you know that on us. We have our models or barometers, our our your little things that we love. If you ask a good lie, he would tell you that uh, truth is on the uh, copper god against 10 years. Yep. Okay. Those models, models or no. relationship or coalitions have worked so well for many, many years. The question is, did COVID, and by that I mean, did the unprecedented bazooka in terms of fiscal and monetary policy has completely changed you know, the, um, what we what we took for granted. Uh, are we shifting into something new where those, you know, divergence, I said uh, over the weekend, 15 divergence of, you know, very uh, correlated, supposedly very correlated uh, series. We are just reaching unseen levels uh, on, on all of them, will they come back or not? And, and, and I don't have the answer. Are we shifting to something very different? All of that to go back to uh, the question, it's yes, uh, the inversion of the curve has always um, sent a red flag. Recession is down the line. We don't know exactly when, but, but it's coming. By the way, the problem is never the inversion of the curve, but there is tipping that uh, unfolds after. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it's 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 sending the same red flag. Will that happen? It's I I honestly, it's uh, about humanity. I, I will tell you, I don't know. I don't know if we are in a completely different uh, macro regime because what happened uh, post COVID. So I think mm -hmm. it may be too early to uh, to answer. And I think that's absolutely fair, uh, Christoph. Um, and a very good point that it is actually the re-steepening of the yield curve that is the true recession signal and not the uh, inversion. So now that we are inverting more and more, it's not necessarily a sign that we have an imminent recession ahead of us. And I think that's the conclusion of our discussion. We don't have that. Yeah, and, and, and the thing is, we never, I don't think that um, we, we've been in a, in a scenario where Central, central banks are, are clearly telling you we are high, very high, but we are intending to stay at that level for a long period of time, which makes the massive inversion of the curve um, understandable and, and uh, quite uh, quite uh, noble, mm. because you have to restrict it for longer. You have to, to, to assume that, first of all, the short part of the curve will not move, and secondly, the odds towards a recession down the line are increasing. Yeah, really good point, Christoph. It was such a pleasure to discuss the world of macro with you. I think we managed to cover, if not all continents, that at least uh, most of them. Um, thank you very much for being with yeah, us. Thank you, thank you Andreas. Uh, we, we, we always love to host you. Um, so, Christoph Olary, founder of uh, Olary Consultings, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, thank you, Andreas, and thank you, Royal uh, Vision, to uh, give me the opportunity to share my views. Thank you very much. My name is Andreas Steno. This was a, another Real Vision deep dive interview series. Um, thank you very much for watching. We will be back again soon with more. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, 
head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.